Welcome back to the Book Club Commune with me, your host, Ivy Poesy. Today, we're heading back into Reform of Revolution by Rosa Luxemburg, and we're reading chapter two and three. I was able to get both of these uh, recorded in one session, so I'm releasing both of them into the same episode, same as I did with the introduction and chapter one of this same text. The plan currently is for me to read all of Reform of Revolution, so you can look forward to seeing the entire book recorded here on the Book Club Commune. With that said, let's get into the, to this episode where we get into chapter two and chapter three. Chapter 2. The Adaptation of Capital According to Bernstein, the credit system, the perfected means of communication, and the new capitalist combines are the important factors that forward the adaptation of capitalist economy. Credit has diverse applications in capitalism. Its two most important functions are to extend production and to facilitate exchange. When the inner tendency of capitalist production to extend boundedly strikes against the restricted dimensions of private property, credit appears as a means of surmounting these limits in a particular capitalist manner. Credit, through shareholding, combines in one magnitude of capital a large number of individual capitals. It makes available to each capitalist the use of another capitalist's money, in the form of industrial credit. As commercial credit, it accelerates the exchange of commodities, and therefore the return of capital into production, and thus aids the entire cycle of the process of production. The manner in which these two principal functions of credit influence the information of crises is quite obvious. If it is true that crises appear as a result of the contradiction existing between the capacity of extension, the tendency of production to increase, and the restricted consumption capacity of the market, credit is precisely, in the view of what was stated above, the specific means that makes this contradiction break out as often as possible. To begin with, it increases disproportionately the capacity of the extension of production and thus constitutes an inner motive force that is constantly pushing production to exceed the limits of the market. But credit strikes from two sides. After having, as a factor of the process of production, provoked overproduction, credit, as a factor of exchange, destroys, during the crisis, the very productive forces it created. At the first symptom of the crisis, credit melts away. It abandons exchange where it would still be found indispensable and appearing instead ineffective and useless. There where some exchange still continues, it reduces to a minimum the consumption capacity of the market. Besides having these two principal results, credit also influences the formation of crises in the following ways. It constitutes the technical means of making available to an entrepreneur the capital of an, of other owners. It stimulates, at the same time, the bold and unscrupulous utilization of the property of others. That is, it lends to speculation. Credit not only aggravates the crisis in its capacity as a disassembled means of exchange, but it also helps to bring and extend the crisis by transforming all exchange 
into an extremely complex and artificial mechanism that, having a minimum metallic money as a real base, is easily disarranged at the slightest occasion. We see that credit, instead of being an instrument for the suppression of or the attenuation of crises, is on the contrary a particularly mighty instrument for the formation of crises. It cannot be anything else. Credit eliminates the remaining rigidity of capitalist relationships. It introduces everywhere the greatest elasticity possible. It renders all capitalist forces extensible, relatively relative and mutually sensitive to the highest degree. Doing this, it facilitates and ag aggravates crises, which are nothing more or less than the periodic collisions of the contradictory forces of, ca of capitalist economy. That leads us to another question. Why does credit generally have the appearance of a means of adaptation of capitalism? No matter what the relation or, or form in which this adaptation is represented represented by certain people, it can obviously consist only of the power to suppress one of the several antagonistic relations, relations of capitalist economy, that is, of the power to suppress or weaken of these contradictions and allow liberty of movement, at one point or another, to the other fettered productive forces. In fact, it is precisely credit that aggravates these contradictions to the highest degree. It aggravates the antagonism between the mode of production and the mode of exchange by stretching production to the limit and at the same time paralyzing exchange at the smallest pretext. It aggravates the antagonism between the mode of production and the mode of appropriation by separating production from ownership. That is, by transforming the capital, capital employed in production into social capital, and at the same time transforming a part of the profit in the form of interest on capital into a simple title of ownership. It aggravates the antagonism existing between property relations, ownership, and the relations of production by putting into a small number of hands immense productive forces and expropriating large numbers of small capitalists. Lastly, it aggravates the antagonism existing between social character of production and private capitalist ownership by rendering necessary the intervention of the state in production. In short, credit reproduces all the fundamental antagonisms of the capitalist world. It accentuates them. It precipitates their development and thus pushes the capitalist world forward to its own destruction. The prime act of capitalist adaptation, as far as credit is concerned, should really consist in breaking and suppressing credit. In fact, credit is far from being a means of capitalist adaptation. It is, on the contrary, a means of destruction of the most extreme revolutionary significance. Has not this revolutionary character of credit actually inspired plans of socialist reform? As such, it has had some distinguished proponents, some of whom, Isaac Pierre in France, were, as Marx put it, half prophets, half rogues. Just as fragile is the second means of adaptation, employers' organizations. According to Bernstein, such organizations will put an end to anarchy of production and do away with crises through their regulation of production. Their multiple repercussions of the development of cartels and trusts have not been considered too carefully up to now. But they predict a problem that can only be solved with the aid of Marxist theory. One thing is certain, we could speak of a damming up the capitalist anarchy through the agency of capitalist combines only in the means of cartels, trusts, and etc., and be become even 
approximately, the dominant form of production. But such a possibility is excluded by the very nature of cartels. The final economic aim and result of combines is the following. Through the suppression of competition in a given branch of production, the distribution of the mass of profit re realized on the market is influenced in such a manner that there is an increase of the share going to this branch of industry. Such organization of the field can increase the rate of profit in one branch of industry at the expense of another. That is precisely why it cannot be generalized for when it is extended to all important branches of industry, this tendency suppresses its own influence. Furthermore, within the limits of their practical application, the results of combines is the very opposite of suppression of industrial anarchy. Cartels ordinarily succeed in obtaining an increase of profit in the home market by producing at a lower rate for, of profit for the foreign market, thus utilizing the supplementary portions of capital which they cannot utilize for domestic needs. That is to say, they sell abroad cheaper than at home. The result is the sharpening of competition abroad, the very opposite of what certain people want to find. This is well That is well demonstrated by the history of the world's sugar industry. Generally speaking, combines treated as a manifestation of the capitalist mode of production can only be considered a definite phase of capitalist development. Cartels are, a, are fundamentally nothing else than a means resorted to by the capitalist mode of production for the purpose of holding back the fatal fall of the rate of profit in certain branches of production. What method do cartels employ to this end? That of keeping inactive part of the accumulated capital. That is, they use the same method which in another form is employed in crises. The remedy and illness resemble each other like two drops of water. Indeed, the first could be considered the lesser evil only up to a certain point. When the outlets of disposal begin to shrink and the world market has been extended to its limit and has become exhausted through the competition of the capitalist countries, and sooner or later that is bound to come, then the, the forced partial idleness of capital will reach such dimensions that the remedy will become transformed into a malady, and capital already pretty much socialized through regulation, will tend to revert again to a form of individual capital. In the face of the increased difficulties of finding markets, each individual portion of capital will prefer to take its, its chances alone. At that time, large regulating organizations will burst like soap bubbles and give way to aggravated competition. In a general way, cartels, just like credit, appear therefore as a determined phase of capitalist development, which in the last analysis aggravates the anarchy of the capitalist world and expresses and ripens its internal contradictions. Cartels aggravate the antagonism existing between the mode of production and exchange by sharpening the struggle between the producer and the consumer, as is the case especially in the United States. They aggravate furthermore the antagonism existing between the mode of production and the mode of appropriation by opposing, in the most brutal fashion, to the working class the superior force of organized capital, and thus increasing the antagonism between capital and labor. Finally, capitalist combines aggravate the contradiction existing between the international character of capitalist world economy and the national character of the state. Insofar, they are always accompanied by a general tariff war, which sharpen the differences among the capitalist states. We must add to this the decidedly revolutionary influence exercised by the cartels on the concentration of production, technical progress, etc. In other words, 
When evaluated from the angle of their final effect on the capitalist economy, cartels and trusts fails as a mean of adaptation. They fail to attenuate the contradictions of capitalism. On the contrary, they appear to be instruments of greater anarchy. They encourage the further development of the internal contradictions of capitalism. They accelerate the coming of a general decline of capitalism. But if the credit systems, cartels, and the rest do not suppress the anarchy of capitalism, why have we not had a major commercial crisis for two decades since 1873? Is that not a sign, contrary to Marx's analysis of the capitalist mode of production has adapted itself, at least in a general way, to the needs of society? Hardly had Bernstein rejected in 1898 Marx's theory of crises when a profound general crisis broke out in 1900, while seven years later a new crisis beginning in the United States hit the world market. Facts proved the theory of adaptation to be false. They showed at the same time that the people who abandoned Marx's theory of crisis only because no crisis occurred within a certain space of time merely confused the essence of this theory with one of its secondary exterior aspects, the 10-year cycle. The description of the cycle of modern capitalist industry as a 10-year period was to Marx and Engels in 1860 and 1870 only a simple statement of facts. It was not based on a natural law, but on a series of given historical circumstances that were connected in with the rapidly spreading activity of young capitalism. In 1825, was the crisis of 1825 was in effect the result of extensive investment of capital in the construction of roads, canals, gas works, which took place during the preceding decade, particularly in England, where the crisis broke out. The following crisis of 1836 to 1839 was similarly the result of heavy investments in the construction of means of transportation. The crisis of 1847 was provoked by the feverish building of railroads in England. From 1844 to 1847, in three years, the British Parliament gave railroad concessions to the value of $15 billion. In each of the three mentioned cases, a crisis came after new bases for capitalist development were established. In 1857, the same result was brought on by the ab abrupt opening of new markets for European industry in America and Australia after the discovery of the gold mines and the extensive construction of railway lines, especially in France, where the example of England was then closely imitated. From 1852 to 1856, new railway lines at, to the value of 1.25 million francs were built in France alone. And finally, we have the Great Crisis of 1873, a direct consequence of the firm boom of large industry in Germany and Austria, which followed the political events of 1866 and 1871. So, up to now, the sudden extension of the main of capitalist economy, and, it, and not its shrinking, was each time the cause of commercial crisis that the international crises repeated themselves precisely every 10 years was purely exterior fact, a matter of chance. The Marxist formula for crises, as presented by Ingalls and Anti-During, and by Marx in the first and third volumes of Capital, applies to all crises only in the measure that it uncovers their international mechanisms and their general basic causes. Crises may repeat themselves every five or ten years, or even every eight or twenty years. But what proves 
proves best the falseness of Bernstein's theory is that it is in the countries having the greatest development of the famous means of adaptations, credit, perfected communications, and trusts, that the last crisis, 1907 to 1908, was the most violent. The belief that the capitalist production could adapt itself to exchange presupposes one, or t one of two things. Either the world market can spread unlimitedly, or, on the contrary, the development of the productive forces is so fettered that it cannot pass beyond the bounds of the market. The first hypothesis constitutes a material impossibility. The second is rendered just as impossible by the constant technical progress that daily creates new productive forces in all branches. There remains still another phenomenon, which, says Bernstein, contradicts the discourse of capitalist development as it is indicated above. In the steadfast phalanx of middle-sized enterprises, Bernstein sees a sign that development of large industry does not move in revolutionary direction and is not as effective from the angle of the concentration of industry as was expected by the, th by the theory of collapse. He is here, however, the victim of his own lack of understanding. For to see the progressive disappearance of large industry is to misunderstand sadly the nature of this process. According to Marxist theory, small capitalists play the general course of capitalist development, the role of pioneers of technical change. They possess that role in a double sense. They initiate new methods of production in well-established branches of industry. They are instrumental in the creation of new branches of production, not yet exploited by the big capitalists. It is false to imagine that the history of the middle-sized middle capitalist establishments proceeds retcilinearly in the direction of their progressive disappearance. The course of this development is, on the contrary, purely dialectical and moves constantly among contradictions. The middle capitalist layers find themselves, just like the workers, under the influence of two antagonistic tendencies, one ascendant, the other descendant. In this case, the descendant tendency is the continued rise of the scale of production, which overflows periodically the dimensions of the average size parcels of capital and removes them repeatedly from the terrain of world competition. The ascendancy is, first, the periodic depreciation of the existing capital, which lowers again from a certain time the scale of production in proportion to the value of the necessary minimum amount of capital. It is represented, besides, by the pe penetration of capitalist production into new spheres. The struggle of the average-sized enterprise against big capital cannot be considered a regularly proceeding battle in which the troops of the weaker party continue to melt away directly and quantitatively. quantitatively. It should be rather regarded as a periodic mowing down of the small enterprises, which rapidly grow up again, only be mowed down once more by large industry. The two tendencies play ball with the middle capitalist layers. The descending tendency must win it in the end. The very opposite is true about the development of the working class. The victory of the descending tendency must not necessarily show itself in an absolute numerical diminution of the middle-sized enterprises. It must show itself first in the progressive increase of the minimum amount of capital necessary for the functioning of the enterprises in the old branches of production. Second, in the constant diminution of the inter interval of time during which the small capitalists conserved the opportunity to exploit the new branches of production. The result is far 
The result, as far as the small capitalist is concerned, is a progressively shorter duration of his stay in the new industry and a progressively more rapid change in the methods of production as a field for investment. For the average capitalist strata, taken as a whole, there is a process of more and more rapidly rapid social assimilation and dissimulation. Bernstein knows this perfectly well. He himself comments on this. What he seems to forget is that this very thing is the law of movement of the average capitalist enterprise. If one admits the small capitalists are pioneers of technical progress, and if it is true that the latter is the vital pulse of capitalist economy, then it is manifest that the small capitalists are an integral part of capitalist development, which can only disappear together with it capitalist development. The progressive disappearance of the middle-sized enterprises in the absolute sense considered by Bernstein, means not, as he thinks, the revolutionary course of capitalist development, but precisely the contrary, the cessation, the slowing up of development, the rate of profit, that is to say, the relative increase of capital, said Marx, is important first of all for new investors of capital grouping themselves independently. And as soon as the formation of capital falls exclusively into a handful of big capitalists, the revivifying fire of production is extinguished. It dies away. End of chapter two. Chapter three, the realization of socialism through social reforms. Bernstein rejects the theory of collapse as a historic road towards socialism. Now what is the way to a socialist society that is proposed by his theory of adaptation to capitalism? Bernstein answered this question only to illusion. Conrad Schmidt, however, attempts to deal with this detail in the manner of Bernstein. According to him, the trade union struggle for hours and wages and the political struggle for reforms will lead to a progressively more extensive control over the conditions of production and, as the rights of capitalist proprietary, proprietor will be diminished through legislation, he will be reduced in time to the role of a simple administrator. The capitalist will see his property lose more and more value to himself, till finally the direction and administration of exploitation will be taken away from him entirely and collective exploitation instituted. Therefore, trade unions and social reforms and, adds Bernstein's, the political de democratization of the state are the means of progressive realization of socialism. But the fact is that the principal function of trade unions, and this is best explained by Bernstein himself in Noyes White in 1891, consists in providing the workers with a means of realizing, cap realizing the capitalist law of wages, that is to say, the sale of their labor power at the current market prices. Trade unions enabled the proletariat to utilize each at each instant the conjecture of the market, but these conjectures, one, the labor demand determined by the state of production, two, the labor supply created by the proletarianization of the middle strata of society and the natural reproduction of the working class, classes, and three, the momentary degree of productive labor. These remain outside the sphere of influence of trade unions. Trade unions cannot suppress the law of wages. Under the most favorable circumstances, the best they can do is to impose on capitalist exploitation the normal limit of the moment. They have not, however, the power to suppress exploitation itself, not even gradually. 
Schmidt, it is, it is true, sees the present trade union movement in a feeble initial stage. He hopes that in the future, the trade union movement will exercise a progressively increased influence over the regulation of production. But by regulation of production, we can only understand two things, intervention in the technical domain of the process of production and, the fixing, and fixing the scale of production itself. What is the nature of a certain influence exercised by trade unions in these two departments? It is clear that in the technique of production, the interest of capitalists agrees, up to a certain point, with the, prog with the progress and development of capitalist economy. It is his own interest that pushes him to make technical improvements, but the isolated worker finds himself in a decidedly different position. Each technical transformation contradicts his interests. It aggravates his helplessness, his helpless situation by depreciating the value of his labor power and rendering his work more intense, more monotonous, and more difficult. Insofar as trade unions can intervene in the technical department of production, they can only oppose technical innovation. But here they do not act in the interest of the entire working class and its emancipation, which accords rather with technical progress and therefore with the interests of the isolated capitalist. They act here in a reactionary direction. And in fact, we find efforts on the parts of workers to intervene in the technical part of production, not in the future where Schmidt looks for it, but in the past of the trade union movement. Such efforts characterize the old phase of English trade unionism up to 1860, when the British organizations were still tied to medieval corporative vestiges and found inspirations in the outworn principle of a fair day's wage for a fair day's labor, as expressed by Webb in his History of Trade Unionism. On the other hand, the F effort of the labor unions to fix the scale of production and the prices of commodities is a recent phenomenon. Only recently have we witnessed such attempts, and again in England. In their nature and tendencies, these efforts resemble those dealt with above. What does the active participation of trade unions in fixing the scale and cost of production amount to? It amounts to a cartel of the workers and entrepreneurs in a common stand against the consumer and especially rival entrepreneurs. In a no way is the effect of this any different than that of ordinary employers' associations. Basically, we no longer have here a struggle between labor and capital, but the solidarity of capital and labor against the total consumers. Considered for its social worth, it is seen to be react a reactionary move that cannot be a stage in the struggle for the emancipation of the proletariat, because it connotes the very opposite of the class struggle. Considered from the angle of practical application, it is found to be a utopia which, as shown by a rapid examination, cannot be extended to a large branches of industry producing from the world market. So that the scope of trade unions is limited essentially to a struggle for an increase of wages and the reduction of labor time, that is to say, to efforts at regulating capitalist exploitation as they are made necessary by a momentary situation of the old world market. But labor unions can in no way influence the process of production itself. Moreover, trade union development moves contrary to what is 
asserted by Conrad Schmidt in the direction of a complete detachment of the labor market from any immediate relation to the rest of the market. That is shown by the fact that even attempts to relate labor contracts to the general situation of production by means of a system sliding wage scales have been outmoded with the historical development. The British labor unions are moving farther and farther away from such efforts. Even within the effective boundaries of its active activity in trade union movements cannot be spread in the unlimited way claimed for by its theory of application. On the contrary, if we examine the large factors of social development, we see that we are not moving towards an epoch marked by a victorious development of trade unions, but rather towards a time when the hardships of labor unions will increase. Once industrial developments have attained its highest possible point and capitalism has entered a, its descending phase on the world market, the trade union struggle will become doubly difficult. In the first place, the objective conjecture of the market will be less favorable to the sellers of labor power because the demand for labor power will increase at a slower rate and labor supply more rapidly than at present. In the second place, capitalists themselves, in order to make up for losses suffered on, world market, on the world market, will make even greater efforts at the, than at present to reduce the part of the total product going to the workers in the form of wages. The reduction of wages is, as pointed out by Marx, one of the principal means of retarding the fall of profit. The situation in England already offers us a picture of the beginning of a second stage of trade union development. Trade union action is reduced of necessity to the simple defense of already realized gains, and even that is becoming more and more difficult. Such is the general trend of things in our society. Counterpart of this tendency should be the development of the political side of the class struggle. Conrad Schmidt commits the same error of historic perspective when he deals with social reforms. He expects that social reforms, like trade union organizations, will dictate to the capitalists on the only conditions under which they will be able to employ labor power. Seeing reform in this light, Bernstein calls labor legislation a piece of social control, and as such, a piece of socialism. Similarly, Conrad Schmidt always uses the term social control when he refers to labor production laws. Once he has thus happily transformed the, the state into society, he confidently adds, that is to say, the rising working class. As a result of this trick of substitution, the innocent labor laws enacted by the German Federal Council are transformed into transitory socialist measures by supposedly enacted by the German proletariat. The mystification is obvious. We know that the state is not, so is not society representing the rising working class. It is itself the representative of the capitalist society. It is a class state. Therefore, its reform measures are not an application of social control, that is, the control of society working freely in its own labor process. They are forms of control applied by the class organization of capital to the production of capital. The so-called social reforms are enacted in the interests of capital. Yes, Bernstein and Conrad Schmidt see at present only feeble beginnings of this control. They hope to see a long succession of reforms in the future, all favoring the working class. 
but here they commit a mistake similar to their belief in the unlimited development of the trade union movement. At basic condition for the theory of the gradual realization of socialism through social reforms is a certain objective development of capitalist production and of the state. Conrad Schmidt says that the capitalist proprietor tends to lose his special rights with historical development and is reduced to the role of a simple administrator. He thinks that the expropriation of the means of production cannot possibly be affected as a single historical act. He therefore resorts to the theory of expropriation by stages. With this in mind, he divides the right of property into one, the right of sovereignty, ownership, which he attributes to a thing called society, and which he wants to extend, and two, its opposite, the simple right of use held by the capitalists, which is supposedly being reduced in the hands of the capitalists to a mere administration of their enterprises. This interpretation is rather a simple play on words, and in that case, the theory of gradual expropriation has no real basis, or it is a true picture of judicial development, in which case, as we shall see, the theory of gradual expropriation is entirely false. The division of the right of property into several component rights and arrangements serving Conrad Schmidt as a shelter wherein he may construct his theory of expropriation by stages, characterize feudal society, founded on natural economies. In feudalism, the total product was shared among the social classes of the time on the basis of personal relations existing between the feudal lords and his serfs or tenants. The decomposition of property into several partial rights reflected the manner of distribution of the social wealth of that period. With the passage to the production of commodities and the dissolution of all personal bonds among the participants in the process of production, the relation between man and things, that is to say private property, became reciprocally stronger. Since the division is no longer made on the basis of personal relations, but through exchange, the different rights to a, to a share in the social wealth are no longer measured as fragments of property rights, having a common interest. They are measured according to values brought by each on the market. The first change introduced into judicial relations with the advance of commodity production in the medieval city communes was the development of absolute private property. The latter appeared in the very midst of feudal judicial relations. This development has progressed at a rapid pace in capitalist production. The more the process of production is socialized, the more the process of distribution, division of wealth, rests on exchange, and the more private property becomes inviolable and closed, and the more capitalist property becomes transformed from the right of the product of one's own labor to the simple right of a, to appropriate somebody else's labor. As long as the capitalist himself manages his own factory, distribution is still, up to a certain point, tied to his personal participation in the process of production. But as the personal management on the part of the capitalist becomes superfluous, which is the case of shareholding societies today, the property of capital, so far as its right to share in the distribution, division of wealth, is concerned, becomes separated from any personal relation with production. It now appears in its purest form, the capitalist right to property reaches. It 
its most complete development in capital held in the, sh the shape of shares and industrial credit. So that Conrad Schmidt's historical schema, tr tracing the transformation of the capitalist from a proprietor to a simple administrator, belies the real historic development. In historic reality, on the contrary, the capitalist tends to change from a proprietor and administrator to a simple proprietor. What happens here to Conrad Schmidt happened to Goethe. What is, as he sees in a dream, what no longer is, becomes for him reality. Just as Schmidt's historical schema travels economically backwards from a modern shareholding society to an artisan's shop, so juridically, he wishes to lead back to the capitalist world into the old feudal shell of the Middle Ages. Also, from this point of view, social control appears in reality under a different aspect than seen by Conrad Schmidt. What functions today as social control, labor legislations, the control of industrial organizations through shareholding, etc., has absolutely nothing to do with his supreme ownership. Far from being, as Schmidt believes, there a reduction of capitalist ownership, his social control is, on the contrary, a protection of such ownership. Or expressed from the economic viewpoint, it is not a threat to capitalist exploitation, but simply, simply the regulation of exploitation. When Bernstein asks if there is more or less of socialism in the labor protective law, we can assure him that in the best protective laws, there is no more socialism than in municipal ordinance regulating the cleaning of streets or the lighting of street lamps. End of chapter three. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Book Club Commune. Like I said earlier, the current plan is to read all of Reformer Revolution by Rosa Luxemburg. So hopefully I will have every single chapter recorded and up on the Book Club Commune feed. I thank you all for listening. Uh, please like and share this with your comrades. Um, the whole purpose of me recording these is to give people access and for them to be able to access these texts that either they just wouldn't have ever normal normally or um, to help them understand them in a new way with the aid of audio i know some people struggle to understand texts when they're just reading them off of a screen or out of a book and hearing someone read along with them can help i know it helps me a lot and that's what encouraged me to do this again i thank you all for listening so much Keep on reading and solidarity forever.